Welcome to the Hogan Lovell's 2021 Outlook, Developments in Shareholder Litigation podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Mullen. In this series, our lawyers will discuss the matters from Delaware courts and beyond in 2020 that were focused on key corporate governance issues, some familiar and some brand new. In this three-part podcast series, we'll analyze key trends to help you better understand their current and future implications. In this episode, we're visiting with Hogan Lovell's partner, Courtney Devon-Taylor, from our Philadelphia office. Also joining us is partner Chris Pickens from our Northern Virginia office. We are recording this podcast from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules. And in this episode, we are discussing the top developments in core corporate governance doctrines and how they will continue to impact the future. Courtney and Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So let's start with Chris, but Courtney can feel free to jump in as well. What impact has COVID-19 had on merger and acquisition litigation? Do you think we will see more of that going forward? Well, thanks, Steve. Certainly last spring, as COVID was starting to become sort of omnipresent, there was a lot of uncertainty as to what impact COVID-19 would have under deal documents that had been signed in the months prior that had not yet closed specifically whether COVID-19 would constitute uh, material adverse change or a material adverse effect, which is often referred to as an MAE, that typically provide an excuse for the buyer from having to close. Although there were a number of cases that were filed initially in the spring, those numbers dwindled as the year went on because New Deal documents being negotiated all tended to include pandemics as an exception to the MAE. So what we're really left with as a result of COVID-19 primarily is some cases that were filed last spring, only a few of which have gotten a merits decision. One of those that was particularly interesting was the AB Stable versus Maps Hotels and Resorts case at the Delaware Chancery Court, which was referenced and described in a little more detail in our 2021 outlook. In the AB Stable case, the buyer of a hotel chain of 15 hotels argued on the closing date in April of 2020 that COVID-19 had been an MAE and also that the seller had failed to operate the business in compliance with the interim operating covenants in the M&A agreement and that therefore it wasn't required to close. The court ultimately concluded that COVID-19 was not an MAE as there was an exception in the agreement for calamities and COVID-19 fell within the definition of calamities. The other interesting result of the court's opinion is that although it found that there was not an MAE, it nonetheless found that buyer was excused from closing because the seller's operation of the business violated the interim operating covenants, which required seller to operate the business in the ordinary course between signing and closing. I see. And how did they violate those covenants? In between signing and closing, The seller had closed one of its hotels entirely, closed another hotel two months early, and had effectively been operating the other 13 hotels with a skeleton crew without food or beverage service and had closed all of the amenities. And the court determined that that was not the ordinary course, and that was not the way the company was operating and signing. And so that was a violation of the interim operating covenant, and buyer was excused from having to purchase the business. And although that does seem to create some tension with the fact that the court had determined that COVID-19 was not an MAE, the business's response to COVID-19 nonetheless excused the buyer from closing, the court was not particularly troubled by that. And why not? The reason was primarily because the MAE provision and the interim operating covenant 
were two different provisions intended to protect the buyer from two different risks. All right, but how do those provisions differ? The MAE provision, according to the court, goes to value, meaning the company I'm getting at closing is roughly the same value as the company I said I was buying it signing. In contrast, the interim operating covenant is intended to protect the buyer and ensure to the buyer that the business he's buying is operating the same way as the business he or she or it said it was going to buy at signing. And here, because of the drastic changes in the way that the seller was operating the business, that risk had materialized. And under the M&A provision, the buyer was excused from having to close on the transaction. And let's move on to our next question. Uh, Courtney, that one's for you. What did you see as the biggest 2020 developments in core corporate governance doctrines? The first one that I would highlight is that the Delaware Chancery Court continues to refine the obligation of minority and controlling stockholders. In our 2021 outlook, we reference a number of cases that demonstrate this, but there are two that stand out to me. The first is Saladay versus Lev, in which for the first time in the context of a conflicted board transaction, a court found that in order to have a cleansing effect, a special committee must be constituted ab initio, meaning before substantive economic negotiations. So you will recall that under the Corwin Doctrine, there are two ways for a board to revive the business judgment rule in a conflicted transaction. One of those ways is by permitting an unconflicted committee of the board full scope to negotiate and enter in any transaction. In the context of analyzing whether that had occurred here, the court explained that discussions prior to the constitution of the special committee set a price collar that negated the committee's ability to replicate an arm's length transaction. Therefore, the formation of the committee was insufficient to mitigate the applicable standard of review. Why is that important? Saladay is noteworthy because it explains for the first time in the context of a conflicted board transaction that a special committee must be constituted from the very beginning, just as is the case with a controlling stockholder transaction. This new nugget is something that companies should keep in mind moving forward. Excellent. Are there any other cases that listeners should be aware of? The second case that I would call out regarding obligations of minority and controlling stockholders is Gilbert versus Perlman. That's also a Delaware chancery decision. In Gilbert, the court explained um, what it calls an unusual theory whereby minority shareholders may become fiduciaries and thus owe a fiduciary duty to other minority stockholders. And this would happen when minority stockholders form a control group with a controlling shareholder. In order to plead this type of theory, a complaint has to allege two conditions. First, there must be an arrangement between the controller and the minority stockholder to act together to achieve a corporate action. Second, the controller must perceive a need to include the minority stockholder to accomplish the goal and also have given up some material attribute of its control in order to gain the minority's assistance. In the case, Minority shareholders filed a complaint alleging basically that a controlling shareholder and several minority shareholders 
breach their fiduciary duties by agreeing to take the company private. And one group of plaintiff minority shareholders alleged that the minority shareholder defendants owed them fiduciary duties because they conspired with the controller. The court explained that even though the complaint alleged coordinated efforts by the controller and defendant minority shareholders, there was no allegation that the controller needed the minority shareholders' help. Or put differently, that the controller gave up or limited its control powers in order to obtain the minority stockholders' participation, right? I think the line that the court used was there was nothing that the controller needed or ceded to the minority. So those cases relate to refining the obligation of minority and controlling stockholders. What is another development in core corporate governance that you've seen? Another development in core corporate governance is the role of the board of directors in complex M&A transactions. Again, we highlighted a number of cases in our 2021 outlook, but I will call out a couple. The first is Rudd versus Brown, also a Delaware Chancery Court decision. Rudd is important because it reaffirms the high bar that a plaintiff must meet if a company's charter contains a Section 102B7 clause and also provides guidance on situations where directors can be found conflicted for the purposes of determining whether there was a breach of the duty of loyalty. Okay, so what were your key takeaways from Rudd? So even though the court dismissed the Rudd complaint, it did explain that one way to state a non-exculpated claim against the director is to plead facts for each director supporting an inference that the director was self-interested, adverse to the stockholder's interest, or that the director acted to advance the self-interest of an interested party or acted in bad faith. As relates to disclosure claims, the court explained that a plaintiff must demonstrate a majority of the board was not disinterested or independent, or that the board was otherwise disloyal because it failed to act in good faith, failing to make a material disclosure. Great. Are there any other decisions you'd like to note? The other decision I will call out relates to uh, INRI 9 West Leverage Buyout Securities Litigation. Unlike the others, that case is being litigated in SDNY. The decision considers defendants' motions to dismiss various claims. And there's one area that stands out to me as relates to the role of the board of directors. Two of the considerations before the court were whether the fiduciary duty claims against the director defendants must fail because either one, plaintiffs could not overcome the business judgment rule Or two, even if the business judgment rule did not apply, the exculpatory provisions in the bylaws limit the context in which directors can be liable for monetary damages. The court found that the complaint adequately alleged that the director defendants failed to conduct a reasonable investigation into the Nine West transaction at issue. And because the director defendants performed no such investigation, They could not hide behind the business judgment rule with respect to those aspects of the transaction. Regarding the exculpatory provisions in the bylaws, the court explained that the complaint adequately alleged recklessness such that the bylaw did not bar liability 
I'll note in this case, the exculpatory provision was pursuant to Pennsylvania law, not Delaware law. So the analysis is a little bit different than in the earlier case that we discussed. Chris, are there any other developments you see? One other interesting development we saw in 2020 uh, as the Delaware courts begin to apply the Delaware Supreme Court's decision in 2019 from Marchand v. Barnhill. In Marchand, the Supreme Court reversed the lower court's dismissal of Caremark claims, which was notable because Caremark claims are often described as the most difficult claim in corporate law for the plaintiff to get a judgment. And the facts of, of Marchand were a little bit unique. In that case, the company at issue was Bluebell Creameries, and they had a serious food safety incident. And the plaintiff had alleged that the board failed to establish any process to provide oversight over potential food safety issues. And the Delaware Supreme Court found that that stated a claim in part because food safety issues were, in, quote, intrinsically critical to a food business like Bluebell Creameries. In 2020, the Delaware Chancery Court applied Marchand in another case called Hughes v. Hugh and denied a motion to dismiss Caremark claims. The interesting thing about Hughes is that while the allegations in that case were particularly egregious, the issue on which the board allegedly lacked oversight was accounting, which is an issue that's applicable to all businesses, not like in Marchand, where it was a food safety issue, which was unique to a food business. So because this decision is dealing with a denied motion to dismiss a Caremark claim for lack of oversight on an issue that is generally applicable to all businesses, you know, it remains to be seen whether this is something that is going to result in an expansion of the Marchand principle and whether Caremark claims will meet with somewhat more success in response to motions to dismiss going forward. And our final question will go to Chris. How do you see all these developments that we've talked about today impacting 2021 and beyond? Well, I think to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, as it relates to COVID-19 and MAE cases, I think we're unlikely to see a lot more cases where whether COVID-19 constitutes an MAE is the central issue in the case because, you know, new deals that have been signed up since then all tend to make pretty clear that pandemics are an exception to the MAE provision. But I think what you what you will see going forward based on the AB Stable case and potentially others that have had to do an in-depth analysis of the MAE provision is that the rationale of those decisions remains something that the courts will apply in other cases after the COVID-19 issue is no longer front and center. And I also think that you'll continue to see courts scrutinize interim operating covenants and MAE provisions separately unless there's language in the deal document that makes one dependent on the other. And then, you know, as it relates to Marchand, as I mentioned, I think it remains to be seen whether this signals an opening for shareholders to meet more success in bringing Caremark claims by alleging that there is some intrinsically critical aspect of the business over which the board lacked oversight. And certainly with the Hughes v. Hugh case, it seems like that's possible, but it merits watching going forward. Courtney, you have the final word. Are there any other developments you see? Yes. I expect that courts will continue to refine the obligations of minority and controlling stockholders and that we will see a number more cases involving exculpatory provisions and ways that directors can be found liable for breach of fiduciary duty despite them. Okay. Courtney Devon-Taylor and Chris Pickens, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Glad to be here. 
For additional analysis on this topic, please download our latest publication, 2021 Securities, Shareholder, and M&A Litigation Outlook, available at HoganLevels.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series. I'm Steve Mullen.